to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 6th, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, and this is your source each Friday for commentary from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate law developments and appellate practice generally. This is our first episode of 2017, and on it we are extremely privileged to welcome our state's foremost jurist, California Supreme Court Chief Justice Tani Cantil Sakaui. Chief Justice was kind enough to visit with me to discuss a broad range of issues, including her time growing up in the shadow of the state capitol, to her rise through the prosecutorial and jurist ranks, and perhaps most importantly to listeners of this program, she offers a diverse array of thoughts on what makes appellate practice most effective. She'll describe what approaches she finds particularly persuasive, and some she finds less so, at the petition for review stage, or the merits briefing stage, or at oral argument. For example, she describes when parenthetical citations could get an attorney into trouble, and in the context of oral arguments, she explains the room that exists for persuasion and why attorneys there should, above all, be cognizant of the force California Supreme Court opinion bears and the effect the legal rule they're arguing for will have on future cases certain to appear before the court. After hearing from our Chief Justice, we'll chat about a major pending state Supreme Court matter, with Michael Risher, senior staff attorney with the ACLU. In that case, the high court is debating whether communications pertaining to public business but stored on public employees' private accounts and devices should be reachable by Public Record Act requests. Mr. Risher, who submitted an amicus brief in the matter, will describe why he thinks law and policy considerations demand that such communications be deemed reachable public records notwithstanding certain privacy concerns voiced both by the opposing side in the matter and the California Supreme Court when this case heard oral argument in December. Before we get to my guests, first let me remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. There should be a link to a short true-false test pertaining to this episode on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Find that, take the test, and one hour of CLE credit is yours. Without any further preamble then, it's my honor to present... California Supreme Court Chief Justice Tani Cantel Sakui. It's my distinct privilege to welcome to the program now uh, our state's most preeminent jurist, California Supreme Court Chief Justice Tani Cantel Sakui. Your Honor, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking some time out for us. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure. Uh, so you're here to talk a bit about appellate law and appellate law best practices, but perhaps first we could talk just a bit about you personally. You're a native of, of Sacramento. Growing up in the state capital, has, uh, has reaching the state's judicial pinnacle meant uh, something special to you? Uh, have you brought any particular experiences or knowledge to the role having been a native of the state's political center? It has, because when I think of California and I think of the capital, of course, uh, its location is important to me. I grew up in an alley um, not far from the capital. And so as a child, I would come to the Capitol and be impressed by it, but always too afraid to go in. So my brothers and cousins and I would would actually entertain ourselves on the front lawn. So as you can imagine, ever thinking that I would do business there or have the opportunity, for example, to give a state of the judiciary or even be in the governor's office has been really something I couldn't fathom and very special to me. Moving ahead a bit after law school, you uh, you moved quickly through the prosecutor ranks with the, um, the Sacramento County District Attorneys uh, and then into Governor Duke Mason's administration before becoming a municipal court judge on the bench. Were there, there experiences or lessons gleaned from that time before your role as a judge uh, in the prosecutor's uh, role or in the executive branch that you've, you've taken into your, your current role as a judge? 
Most definitely. I think both uh, kinds of work prepared me to be on the bench, and that is when I was in the prosecutor's office, of course, just the nuts and bolts of the trial work and how it unfolds and to have talented advocates before me who chose different strategies, uh, that was valuable to my ability to preside over a case and actually to review it even as an appellate justice or as the chief. But when I went to the governor's office, I think that was probably my most revealing, illuminating experience because I worked in his cabinet and I worked in what they call his horseshoe. So that means my office was maybe a few doors down from his. And so I saw the governor and I was in on all the briefings in the morning and the strategy discussions. And of course, I was just a minion, so I was in the corner, but I had the opportunity to watch how someone very powerful listened and engaged and did research and asked questions and included the expertise of people around him and put things over and thought about it. So I saw great deliberation through the George Duke Majin administration. I saw him get advice. I saw who his advisors were. I saw how he acted on legislation, and I learned a lot from his leadership and from the people around him. I think that greatly informed me in my efforts to be inclusive and to make sure that we bring voices to the table to ensure that the decisions we make on the administrative side are really going to work and be fair and be practical. Your next step, as I mentioned, was onto the bench. I'd be curious to know when along your professional path you first entertained notions of becoming a jurist? I would say about six months before I was appointed. <laughs> I, I actually had been, as you said, a prosecutor, and then I went to the governor's office and worked for several years, but didn't think about going back to the bench until I learned that George Duke Majin was not seeking a third term and we would all be headed elsewhere. So a friend of mine went to the attorney general's. A friend of mine became a lobbyist and so I had the opportunity at that point to think about where I wanted to go. And I had always thought I would go back to court work. I always thought I'd go back to being a prosecutor. But then it was revealed to me the possibility of actually going to the bench because in those days, when there was a muni court, a municipal court, I actually had enough years in as a lawyer to be appointed to the municipal court. I think in those days it was six years and I had six and a half. So I was eminently qualified to go to the municipal court. At that stage when you're a young judge, did you have any jurist examples that you looked up to, perhaps folks that you knew as an attorney or that you perhaps looked up to uh, throughout history? Oh, I would definitely say that. Sacramento, uh, when I was practicing, had such a, a steadfast and I would say solid, smart bench that I thought as a prosecutor. And I didn't always win, of course, but I learned a lot from judges there. Uh, from Judge Michael Ullman, who always indicated and critiqued all young lawyers after trials. From um, one, of, uh, one of the first few female judges, Judge Carol Miller, who is now deceased. I learned to watch how she negotiated cases. And of course, even today, uh, Justice Vance Ray, who is the appellate presiding justice of the Third District Court of Appeal here in Sacramento, but covers 21 jurisdictions, he was also uh, from the George Duke Majin administration had gone to the bench and I admired his calm, thoughtful manner. So I had great role models, of course, to, that I worked in and worked with. You uh, then begin to graduate through the echelons of California's judiciary to the Superior Court, the Appellate Court, and then um, into the Supreme Court as Chief Justice. Uh, you have a, a family, uh, 
your husband is a retired Sacramento Police Department lieutenant. You have two daughters. What, what has it been like being in uh, such a demanding role and now such a, a prominent and recognizable and, and time-consuming one? Well, it's always exhilarating. It's been exhausting, often humbling, but I also feel blessed for all of it. I, have, I enjoy every role, every experience. I learn something new every day. And I think what makes this work so exciting is working with talented people who care and who are dedicated. So this feels more like a team effort than, at least as chief, is more like a team effort than uh, any position I've ever held. I am supported by extraordinary teams of people, both in my work at the Supreme Court and in the administration of the Supreme Court itself. And then with my work on the Judicial Council, I'm blessed with talented people who go all out for California and on my behalf. You mentioned the work on the Judicial Council. Um, that's just one of many responsibilities that you have outside of the, the courtroom itself, outside of deciding cases. You're the Judicial Council head, and in that role, you lobby for your, your branch. You're also making appearances on, on news programs and, and trade journal podcasts like this one. Now you're at, at bar association events around the state. How are you able to balance all those external demands and still keep up with your responsibility of deciding the state's most exigent legal questions? Well, Brian, I will say that the first and foremost is that this work is incredibly interesting and engaging. So it's very easy to to be uh, fully present and to participate in it. But in order for me to really be able to do as much as I do that interests me fully is because, like I said, I have tremendous groups of folks that I work with, both in my chambers, my chambers attorneys, my chambers staff, then, of course, the... Uh, the clerical staff that helps run the court itself that reports to me as chief justice. And then on the judicial council, we have great members. They're a diverse group on the council. We have five incredibly dedicated chairs who are just as engaged. And then, of course, the judicial council staff to me is, is so professional and deeply committed. They have a strong history of what's happening in this state. I think we all share the same vision about access to justice. And it's exciting. And none of us does it alone. It is truly a group effort and with good people. Speaking of, of group efforts, your, your court, you know, strives to speak unanimously as often as it can with unanimous opinions. Um, why do you believe that that is an important goal? And um, how, as the court's leader, do you try to, to foster consensus, especially with members of the court that have different backgrounds and, and personal ideologies? be them political or, or otherwise, uh, and also considering the fact that the court has undergone some considerable changes over the past few years in terms of its composition. Those are good questions. I will say that the court seeks to be unanimous at all times, I think, if we can, without sacrificing principle, because we understand that as the highest court in the state and as active and diverse as California is, we try to speak with clarity. We recognize our role as providing guidance, not only to the courts, but to, for example, businesses and, and, and other entities, professions that can rely on the stability and consistency and predictability of the law that permits them to carry on their business and make business decisions and make decisions about going forward knowing what the law is. 
when the law is uncertain or they feel that it may change at any time because perhaps the votes may divide differently if the composition were different, if the facts were just slightly different, I think it may actually introduce a bit of unpredictability and instability. So I think we as the High Court recognize that it is best if we can to speak with one voice. And even when we speak with one voice, um, it still permits an opportunity for concurring opinions that may want to speak to or invite uh, some consideration on a future issue. But as the High Court, uh, we really do seek to clarify and to simplify and to provide guidance and predictability. And as for our ability to create that kind of uh, collegiality and um, uniformity or unanimous decisions, I would be taking way too much credit if I said it was all because of me. It's it's not. I, I am with a truly uh, collegial group of seven people. And I think it's because we're all different and we have different experiences that our conversations around my conference table are engaging and they're, we all learn from each other. They're thoughtful. They're funny. And we appreciate our, each of our own individuality and respect that we may disagree and we may write separately and we may dissent, but it never detracts from our respect for each other at the table. And I think that contributes greatly to what I would say is our consensus or our ability to build consensus. Moving into our discussion on appellate law and best practices that you, that you see before you, we'll, we'll start at the, the beginning of a life cycle of a, a case before the California Supreme Court, the, the review petition stage. Obviously, your court receives many more petitions for review than it can possibly grant, so necessarily it's, it's only granted in a small percentage uh, of instances. Um, if you or to advise appellate attorneys trying to, to appeal a case, first in terms of selecting the right case to appeal, and then in terms of writing the, the petition for review, what would you advise them? Well, I think the first thing they know, and I'm sure they do, is to look to our California Rule of Court 8.500, which gives you the general guidelines on when it is the Supreme Court will actually grant review on a matter. But of course, it's always important in the petition for review to the court to truly try to explain succinctly why Supreme Court intervention is not only necessary or critical at this time, in this case, but why it should be your case now and why your case is the best vehicle, that is, is the best record, the best briefing that the court can really use to resolve the question. For example, we may see a case that presents an interesting issue, but you, we may or may not be hesitant because of where it is in its procedural uh, process. And or we may say, well, the briefing didn't mention the most recent cases that address this issue. So maybe we wonder, or I wonder anyway, how good the briefing might be later on if it didn't capture initially that these are going to be the seminal cases. So I suppose it's really a matter of ensuring that the petition for review be positioned in the best way possible that would could sway four votes to grant. And that means explaining to us why, with limited resources, only seven of us, we should spend our time on this case. Obviously, petition for review is the primary mechanism by which cases are, are heard before the Supreme Court, but there's another lesser-used procedure, and that's sua sponte review. 
um, your court actually recently issued an opinion in a case called Mass for Superior Court, which will will set aside. But that was granted review sua sponte by by your court. Um, when when does your court consider using that particular procedural device, and and in what sorts of cases will it just decide to hear matters uh, sua sponte? You're right. It is it is rare for the Supreme Court to grant review where neither party and no party has asked for the review. But what I think people should know is that sometimes there are issues out there that may interest uh, a justice or a couple of us. And so we're waiting for the right vehicle or we're waiting for an issue to percolate. Or sometimes, even if it isn't something we've been looking for or that captures our interest, sometimes we'll look at an issue as to how it was decided. And we think that perhaps we as a court could correct this, clarify it, and it's a relatively straightforward get in, get out kind of case where we could give more guidance to the uh, courts below and to the parties and to defendants. So it is rare, and because it's rare, I can't say that there are any particular factors that compel us or trigger our attention to grant review sua sponte, but I, but I just said are oftentimes in my experience what gets the court talking about, well, shouldn't we take this case? Moving into the, the briefing stage of a case, uh, obviously you read many briefs, uh, amicus and, and merits. What, uh, in your opinion, do the best briefs tend to share? What qualities and, and alternatively, what, uh, what practices or qualities would you prefer to see less often in the briefs that are submitted to your court? I think the best briefs share clearly succinct, clear writing, and that the best briefs will tell us and presage what the issue, what the point is they want to make, and then tell us the types of, give us the, the cases that support why we should take this or why their position is correct. So it's good briefing is, for example, putting the writer or the attorney in the shoes of the reader. And what do you like to read and how would you like to read it? Because keep in mind the process. The briefs are read by very, very engaged, uh, smart attorneys at the court and by the jurists, the justices. And so we read a number of briefs. And so what we used to say when I was at the Court of Appeal, I know this is probably hard to imagine, but a brief should sing. And by that we mean it is something that is cohesively, uh, collectively pointing to the absolute correctness of your position. That is, it straightforwardly states the statute and the language and its meaning and its legislative history if need be, but also the cases that support this interpretation. And if you seek a different interpretation, then you have to tell us why in the brief and make whatever it is that you are advocating, whether it be a different interpretation or the same interpretation, that whatever your interpretation is would comport with the policy or purpose of the statute that you are asking us to interpret or decide, that the long-range application of whatever outcome or rule particularly, that you want the court to adopt is going to continue to be reasonable in its viability years beyond and different from the facts of your case. Digging into some specific 
briefing strategies. I've heard conflicting philosophies from attorneys as to um, whether to use particular stratagems such as string citations or parenthetical citations or, or footnotes. Um, do you or do your court um, or does your court have feelings about the use of these different devices? I don't think that we have, um, to my knowledge, I know I do not have strong opinions about uh, any of those practices. And at least starting with the last that you mentioned, footnotes, I think they're valuable because they add and they're helpful to understand the universe of the case, as long as it's quasi-relevant to either the point you're making or the issue. And also the, the same with citations. Of course, we take the briefs and the citations to the cases and reread them, and then we continue to look for other cases that may also have some bearing on the issue. So at least as far as I am concerned, and something I've not really heard from my colleagues, I have no objection to string citations, and nor uh, necessarily to how counsel may actually cite one or two cases for their strongest proposition, because I think eventually we will hone in on those cases that really seem to answer or control or directly influence the issue before us. We'll get to those tangential cases perhaps as well, but eventually we focus on the core cases of the issue. With, with one of those strategies, parenthetical citations, has it ever been, been the case where you'll come across a parenthetical citation, including some language from a supporting case that uh, once you do look it up, you, you might find that that language is more helpful than the case it itself is to the attorney's cause? Yes. So, of course, let me say this. We, we read the record. So, on the, as an aside, make sure if you are quoting from the record that it is accurate. But also when language is cherry-picked, um, we will we'll read the case. We'll know if it's cherry-picked. And that doesn't help your the trust level with the remainder of your brief. So, of course, it's always best to be straightforward about the case and the language. If you're going to cherry pick, I suggest that you do so with caution. Maybe getting into oral arguments, I'm going to ask the same question. Are there particularly uh, useful and effective and persuasive strategies that lawyers before you will employ and vice versa, um, perhaps less effective strategies that attorneys will bring to the court? Well, attorneys all have their own style, and I think that there is a fair amount of just practice and custom that attorneys bring when they argue. They don't argue differently in front of the California Supreme Court than they do at the courts of appeal, I suppose. And I can't speak for my colleagues, but I can say that for me, having spent 14 years as a trial judge I and as a trial attorney, at this point now, um, some, what, some 12 years later after the trial courts, I am not particularly persuaded by uh, personal stories and exhortations of emotion about cases. Because at the time that we are there hearing the argument, uh, I have read the facts and now I'm focused primarily on the law. And unless your case turns on a strong factual nuance or a strong factual element, I really want to hear about the law and I want to hear about what we should do with it and what is equitable, what will, what is legal, what is consistent with other states. I want to hear strong arguments for why we should rule your way. I don't want to hear particularly stories unless someone should ask something that's uh, what I would say outside the record. 
So for me, anyway, the best advocates are the advocates who get right into the language we are seeking to interpret and the cases and the rule that they want. I think that every attorney should think about coming to the Supreme Court with a rule they have in mind and then be prepared to defend the rule in such a way that it comports with the policy and purpose of the statute or the body of law that we are studying. I also think now, too, given that we live webcast oral arguments, that it would behoove counsel for, to maybe watch one or two to just hear the kinds of cases, the kinds of questions that the justices ask to help them understand what they may be asked in their argument. Yeah, just as a follow-up to that, has it been interesting as a fairly recent development, the oral arguments being webcast, has it... Um, what has that experience been like now, knowing that you're you're live on the air when the arguments are happening? It's interesting. Um, I don't think any of us give it a second thought. We're so we're so our heads are so full of information that by the time we sit down to hear argument, we are immediately taken away with the argument. We are immediately transported because, mind you, we'll hear on any given day three cases in the morning and three in the afternoon. And so when the attorneys come, they are fully prepared, chapter and verse, for the one case they have before us. But all of us on the bench, we're already chapter and verse with six cases. So we immediately are engaged. I know I am. I've heard my colleagues' questions. I observe them on the bench. Um, there is no thought that there's a camera nearby or close. It is completely doing the work. Speaking of, of persuasion at the oral argument stage, I've heard attorneys express some skepticism as to the amount of room for persuasion that exists at that stage, um, thinking that perhaps jurists' minds might be made up or, in fact, opinions might be partially or perhaps substantially written. Um, what would you say to attorneys appearing before your court that, that might be skeptical as to how much room there is per, for persuasion at, at oral argument? I would say to them that uh, they should come in and argue their heart out because nothing that I have seen as we prepare to go into oral argument is hewn in stone. In fact, we do have, of course, tentative views on the case. We do have and have exchanged with each other preliminary responses to the authoring chamber's uh, draft memo on the case. Uh, but the truth is, is that in my view, we are a better bench because of it, because we are truly prepped. So when the parties come to argue their case before us, we are on all fours. We, we know the facts. We know what realm of law we are in. And I, I'd like to think, and I'm sure many practitioners would disagree with me, but I'd like to think that they get better questions and a more focused inquiry from a court that's read the law, thought it through, have some tentative views, and are asking about whether or not the views that they have about this case, and maybe the rule they're thinking of, could in fact actually be amenable and valid and practical to the trial courts and to practitioners and to the public. I mean, we're, we're engaging in a conversation with the parties. We're very well versed in the subject matter. But we, too, are also testing what we know. And we're asking the only other subject matter experts in the room, how is this going to work? So we, we come in with tentative views. But always the analysis 
is subject to change. And that means, therefore, the result. But it is true, we come in with a fairly a comprehensive background of information before we start argument on each case. Speaking a bit more broadly, there were one thing overall, one particular piece of information that you would most wish to impart in the minds of an attorney set to try a case before your court. What would that be? What would you most, above all, want folks in front of your court to be aware of? I think they should be aware that we will be asking them as advocates and presumably experts in the area about a rule that the Supreme Court should hold, uphold or create. And we will ask, what should that rule be? What specifically are you asking for here? And then once the advocate can tell us, then we're going to ask about how that works in terms of the language. How do we get there? How do we get to your rule? Is it the language? Is it interpretation of case law? Or the question then becomes, if we can get there, does it comport with the legislative intent and the purpose of this statute or this act? Is it in line with the policy that the decision makers in the other two branches of government intended? So those are the questions we're going to be asking because we are ostensibly creating a rule, a holding out of a case that's going to apply far beyond the case of the litigants before us. We're aware of that. We're also aware that our analysis could possibly, therefore, then be copied in a similar kind of case in terms of getting to a different result. So I think the, the party should know we're thinking very specifically about your case, but we have greater concerns about the consequences of whatever rule that we might later adopt. You mentioned a few times I have some concern more broadly for the cases that will come next and, and some concern for, for policy considerations and for rules comporting with the designs of the legislature, if it's a case questioning a statute. Um, how much should attorneys have, have, have that in mind, the policy concerns, uh, compared to, to legal concerns and concerns over conflicting precedent? Well, they have to know that because they're arguing in front of the California Supreme Court, we're going to have concerns about the consequences and long-range impact of our ruling and that we are always thinking about the next case that comes before us under different facts. So the attorneys do remind us, well, you don't have to get to that question. You can just answer the issue before us. And we then, at post-argument conference, decide how broad or how limited we may make our ruling. But because we're the California Supreme Court, because the review cases that we grant are not as many as the kind of jurisprudence that comes out of the courts of appeal, when we grant review of a case, we do it because it has significant impact, significant um, concerns. It's, a, it's an important, critical legal issue for California, not just for the case uh, presently before us. Maybe just to wrap up, you mentioned in, in this year's State of the Judiciary speech in the spring um, some particular goals for the judiciary, including, uh, just to name a couple, improvements in the area of, of bail and, and courts, court fines and fees. Um, why did you highlight those specific areas? What do you think can be improved? And do you have any other uh, preeminent goals for the near term of the judiciary? 
Well, on the administrative side, of course, in my state of the judiciary, I, I always talk about access to justice. And access to justice comes in many different forms that maybe a lot of people don't generally think about. So in my state of the judiciary, I talked about bail reform. And I talked about that because I believe that some of our structures that have served us over the years deserve and need a reassessment to determine whether or not they are still fulfilling the goals we originally set out. And bail is one of those areas where um, can be very costly to an accused awaiting a trial. And I'm not sure that we can say, based on recent studies and based on other practices in other states and based on experience, that cash bail actually protects the public. And if it doesn't, or if we have a question about it and someone's liberty is at stake, then we should study the question to ensure that we are still doing the correct and appropriate thing. So I raised the cash bail question. And I'm proud to say that we are looking at uh, that kind of reform by my appointment of a working group of, of judges and lawyers to take a look at the practices in California, our 12 pilot programs, and whether we can improve on ensuring public safety and court appearances without 100% reliance on cash bail that can sometimes work inequities on the poor. And the same thought also informs my position on fines and fees in California. Courts impose fines and fees as a result of statutory mandates. And we have a series of these fines and fees with these mandates that probably ought to be reexamined to ensure that they are appropriate and the fines and fees are truly serving their purpose of, in, of making a person who's committed a crime or violated the laws accountable and only accountable and not beyond that to ensure that we are not funding state and judicial branch programs on the backs of the poorest of the people who come before our court and are assessed with a fine and a fee. I think it's worthy of a study. We need to ensure that we are conscious in how it is we apply penalties and that they be that they cause people to be accountable, but not punitive beyond that. In terms of areas of law, do you have any thoughts as to particularly evolving um, subject matter or legal doctrines that might be the ones your court will principally wrestle with in the, the upcoming months and years? Well, I think you could look at our docket and you could probably discern what I'm going about to say. I think you're going to see arbitration issues. I think you're going to see CEQA issues. Uh, water issues. Um, I'm hoping that we have spoken enough about anti-slap that you won't see too many of those, but those continue to come to the California Supreme Court. You're going to continue to see uh, private attorney general PAGA issues with um, unfair competition law, Consumer Legal Remedies Act, and the uh, false advertising uh, law. We're going to see, I think, more and more of these kinds of cases in addition to whatever may naturally be a result of the initiatives that were passed, as well as new legislation signed by the governor in um, this last legislative year. So I think it's going to be interesting, and we're going to see new grounds, I think, in California that are going to trickle their way up to the California Supreme Court. Uh, it certainly sounds like your court will have a lot to do, and 
I'll go ahead and let you get back to it. I appreciate your time. Chief Justice Tani Cantel Sakaui, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Thank you for your interest. Once more, that was our state's Chief Justice, Tani Cantel Sakaui, discussing herself, her court, and the most effective appellate practices of attorneys that appear before it. We'll move now to a discussion about a specific case that heard oral arguments in the California Supreme Court in December, one pertaining to the reach of the Public Records Act request and whether or not it can retrieve documents pertaining to public business if those documents are stored on the private accounts or devices of public employees. To discuss that case, here is Michael Risher, a senior staff attorney with the ACLU. Welcome to the program now. Michael Risher, a senior staff attorney with the ACLU in Northern California, practices in a range of areas, including freedom of speech, open government, criminal justice, and, and privacy rights. Mr. Risher, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So the case we're discussing today is a city of San Jose versus Superior Court of Santa Clara County with real party at interest, Ted Smith. This is a case that examines and the reach of the California Public Records Act. But before we get too far in, let's start at the beginning here. Who is, who is Ted Smith and what uh, public records was he seeking? Ted Smith is just a regular guy who asked for communications between the mayor and council members, uh, communications between them and specific people related to a redevelopment project. He specifically requested not only documents that would be found in their offices, but also any emails uh, or text messages relating to those that project that they may have sent on private accounts or using private devices. Mm-hmm. And that's really the crux of this case, whether those emails... Uh, are disclosable under the Public Records Act. Now, the first judicial body that considered that question, the Superior Court of Santa Clara County, uh, sided with Mr. Smith, correct? Yes, it did. It it very reasonably uh, looked at the situation and I think understood that if you say the government officials can simply log on to their private Gmail accounts and have communications with with their donors, for example, about government business, uh, or can step outside their office and and send a, an email or text message from their their private phone with those same uh, donors about official government business. That really allows them to circumvent the whole intent, not just of the Public Records Act, but also of the Constitution of California, which, uh, as amended a decade ago by the voters, provides us with a right to access to government information. And with the purpose of those laws in mind, it looked at the language of the Public Records Act and says, well, okay, uh, local government agencies have to turn over records. Local government agencies only can operate through their personnel. Uh, that's long-established law. Uh, and therefore, even though the definition of a local public agency that uh, in the Public Records Act does not specifically include officials like the mayor and the city council member, uh, the Public Records Act must apply to these sorts of records, and it ordered the uh, the city to turn them over. The case reaches the appellate courts, and they'll overturn the trial court and, and do so with a, a fairly text-based rationale. Could you uh, lay out what exactly the text of the Records Act is that the court is regarding here? Sure. The Public Records Act, uh, enacted back in 1968, signed into law by then-Governor Reagan, uh, defines records as to include uh, a writing meaning any record that, that has anything to do with the uh, the public business. 
And that's not really an issue here, but I'll say what it is anyway. It's Government Code 6252E, and public records includes any writing containing information relating to the conduct of the public's business, prepared, owned, used, or retained by any state or local agency, regardless of physical form or characteristics. So public records clearly can include things like email and text messages. The question in this case is whether they are, uh, the records in question are, uh, prepared, owned, used, or retained by any state or local agency. We're not talking about a state agency. We're talking about a local agency, a city. Uh, and the Public Records Act, 6252A, says the local agency includes a city and county, school district, municipal corporation, and goes on to include other types of agencies. Uh, it does not specifically include officials, and this is important to the court, or was to the Court of Appeal, because in contrast, a state agency, as defined by the Public Records Act, means every state office, office, officer, department, division, bureau, board, commission, or other body or agency. So uh, that's the text of the Public Records Act that the Court of Appeal thought was critical, specifically that you have a definition of local agency, which includes cities and counties, but not individual officers expressly, whereas the definition of a state agency include officials uh, in addition to the, the various bodies that uh, that make up our state government. We'll get more into that textual concern of the 6th Appellate District in just a second, but first the panel um, regarded Smith's primary policy concern, which you've laid out, that it'd be simple enough for uh, an agency to circumvent the Public Records Act altogether by just having their employees use Gmail for anything particularly sensitive uh, that they would want to hide from the public view. Um, why did the, the Sixth Appellate District not find that policy concern particularly persuasive or determinative here? Well, it, it may well have found it persuasive. It didn't find it determinative because it believed that uh, including these types of texts or emails sent on from private devices or accounts uh, simply aren't included in the text of the Public Records Act. Uh, and according to the Court of Appeal, the legislature should or can amend the Public Records Act to include them. Uh, I don't find the textual analysis all that persuasive, but for the Court of Appeal, it trumped uh, the intent of the uh, of the Public Records Act and the uh, the California Constitution. Sure. So, your response to the panel saying that well, the legislature could amend this, and that's the change that's needed, would be what that. A change actually isn't needed, that the text does provide for provision of the records at issue here? Absolutely. There's no need for the legislature to amend the Public Records Act to include these records because they're already included. Uh, and there are a few, I mean, putting aside the policy reasons, which are important, um, but if we just take a slightly more uh, formalistic approach, like the one that the Court of Appeals took, uh, I think we still get to that same place. It is the case, it's well established in California law, of course, that uh, a local agency or any government agency can only act through its uh, officers, through its employees. That's pretty clear. So I think without the, the difference in definition of the state agency, uh, the court may well have said, well, of course that's true. Of course we, we need to have records that individual employees are using, and that's the case of... Uh, that's the case whether or not we're talking about these new electronic records or whether we're talking about an employee who happens to work at home sometimes 
Uh, and just because he uses his own paper on his own laptop sitting in his own uh, study at home, if he's conducting official business, those records should be official and the same thing, or should be covered by the Public Records Act. The same thing should apply here. Where the uh, where the Court of Appeal went wrong, I think, is is in a couple ways looking at the statute. First of all, it gave too much importance to the uh, the differences in definitions between the state definitions of state and local agency. It is the reason that the definition of a state agency in the Public Records Act needs to specifically include officials is because there are some state officials who don't really seem to be uh, part of any particular agency. The ones that come to mind are the governor, for example, and the lieutenant governor. So when you're talking about the state, if you want to include those officials who aren't necessarily part of any, any separate agency, well, you need, to set, you need to specifically say officials. That's not the case with a local agency. The mayor, city council members, the members of a board of supervisors uh, of a county, well, they're all clearly part of either the city or the county or whatever other local agency they might be governing. So you don't need in the definition of a local agency to separately um, mention officials. The other uh, aspect of, the, of this, uh, I think, this reasoning, if you are going to take this rather formalistic textual approach to the statute, well, then you need to look at the entire statute. And the, the uh, absence of the word official in the definition of a local agency is really not the only relevant def- difference between the two definitions. Here we have a state agency means every state office, officer, department, division, etc., whereas a local agency includes a county, city, uh, and other other local bodies. Well, okay, if it's so significant that one of them contains the word official and one doesn't, then I think it's equally significant that the definition of a local agency uses the word includes, whereas the definition of a state agency uses the word means. Uh, includes isn't a limit. It means it includes something, and it may well include other things. Similarly, the definition of a public record uh, uses the word includes rather than means. Other parts of the Public Records Act say that the definitions say that this term means something. The Public Records Act uh, has long been held uh, to be something the courts must interpret broadly in favor of uh, open government. That was reinforced by Prop 59 back in 2004, which in fact put that in the California Constitution, that public records laws must be interpreted broadly uh, when doing so promotes public access. If you're going to interpret these, these statutes broadly and you have these definitions that say, well, a uh, public record includes these items and local governments include the listed entities, well, you should certainly say that they also can include writings of specific public officials, even if they're sent on a private device when they relate to uh, government business. That's consistent with the uh, the constitutional imperative that it should be read broadly to uh, to increase public access. The case is up before the, the state Supreme Court, which heard its arguments last week. Um, I believe to some extent there was some sympathy expressed, um, at least in terms of policy considerations towards the side of of Smith, the, the court noted that there's certainly some some sense to the idea that government shouldn't be able to entirely hide documents on on private ser- servers or devices. But the court noted that the the second step, even if they 
were to officially say that, that uh, the act reaches those documents on those devices. And the second step is sort of dodgy because you're not sure then what the rule would be or what the policies would be um, if you have state agencies that then are required to go look through thousands of, of documents on private servers or devices. And that could just be a somewhat formidable logistics concern um, that's sort of apart from you know the, the textual analysis and, and the law. But just that that policy consideration does seem daunting. Why do you find it not to be uh, terribly so? Well, for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, even under the Court of Appeals approach, state agency, the state, the definition of a, a state agency uh, does include officials. So these records under the Court of Appeals approach would be, uh, would be covered if they were in the possession of some sort of state officer or employee. Uh, so saying that it doesn't, uh, it's too burdensome with respect to the local governments. Well, okay, the burden's going to be there. We're going to have to figure out how to do it anyway. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make sense to have a distinction between the way we treat requests to state agencies and the way we treat requests to local agencies. In, in that same vein, California is not the first jurisdiction to grapple with these, uh, issues. The federal government, this of course has come to light in the, in the recent election with, uh, Secretary Clinton's private server and all of the, uh, the discussion of that. The federal government now, uh, for a long time has had policies dealing with these exact issues, uh, and now has a statute, in fact, that specifically it doesn't prohibit people, uh, federal employees from using, for example, private email accounts to conduct official business, although it leaves it up to agencies to do that. Um, but what it does say is that if they're going to use private email accounts to conduct official business, they have to ensure um, that they make those records available uh, to the agencies so that they can be archived and available under the, the Federal Freedom of Information Act. That's uh, 44 U.S.C. Section 2911. That is certainly one approach, and, and other states, many, you have courts in other states, you've got statutes in other states that specifically do this, and you have attorney general opinions in other states that uh, either say, right, say outright that uh, documents, emails, texts relating to official business that government employees send on their private accounts are within the public records, those states' public records laws, or require that they not conduct business uh, using their private email accounts, or that if they do so, they CC their, their own account so that it's uh, available. Uh, all of which is to say that other states, other jurisdictions have dealt with these issues. The sky has not fallen on them. And there are very practical ways of dealing with it. The easiest way is simply to say, well, employees should not be conducting official business using their private accounts. There are good reasons for doing that not just because it eliminates all of these problems, but also because when you have employees, particularly officials, uh, high-ranking officials conducting official business using their private email accounts, private texts, it generates a huge number of security issues for the IT folks. And one thing that's also come out in the election is the uh, possibility of hacking into uh, private email of, uh, accounts of government officials and cybersecurity in general. It makes it much more difficult to control and implement proper security protocols if you have people using their private accounts to, to conduct official business. 
if you don't want to go that far, or if you want to account for the occasional case where somebody emails the government official on her private account, uh, well, it's easy enough for them to respond, the official to respond, and CC her official account. Then it's backed up on the government servers. Again, this doesn't become an issue. Even if we, if those, you don't implement those, or you're looking back at things that have already happened, I don't think anybody is suggesting that uh, the mayor has to turn over his phone or and provide the the password to his private accounts so that people in the city government can search through it looking for responsive emails. I mean, anyone who's conducted small-scale civil litigation uh, or anyone who who does public records work work knows that's not how these things happen. If I send a public records request uh, to the city of San Jose and they think that some employee has paper documents responsive to that request sitting in his office, they don't go into the office at midnight and search through that person's drawers looking for the paper. They call them up or send them an email say, hey, we got this request. We need you to, to provide us with any responsive documents. We can do the same thing here. If you have a rule saying that, okay, you the mayor, you the city council member, you any old employee have a duty to, if the agency gets a public records request and you have responsive documents on your private uh, account, well, you have to find those and provide them. Uh, that's a reasonable rule. It's not invading anybody's privacy because we're talking about documents related to official business um, that you might have to turn over. Uh, and you can have that sort of rule, and it largely solves these problems. Now, of course, people might say, well, that doesn't really solve the problem because maybe that employee is not going to turn over the incriminating document or the document that, that makes them look bad. Yes, that's a problem, but it's much less of a problem than not having that person have a duty to turn anything over at all. And we, we assume that our government officials will follow the law. Uh, and so just because maybe it's not a perfect solution doesn't mean that we shouldn't have any solution at all here to this problem of, of public access to these to these documents. Another point that the, the California Supreme Court raised was the issue of figuring out what exactly pertains to to the public, what records concern the, the official business. It's easy enough to say that official business should be, uh, documents pertaining to it should be turned over. Um, but the court identified some hypotheticals, such as if an employee has, sends a text message or an email to their relative saying, you know, complaining about their boss or saying that the lines at the DMV are too long, um, that that could potentially be viewed as, as a public matter because it would suggest those agencies weren't uh, performing as efficiently as they, they could. Uh, is, is that a legitimate concern that there might be a, a line drawing problem and then there could be, I don't know, too many documents sought or just a, a, a blurry line there? Well, I mean, that I think that is a more substantial issue than the other one. Um, but nonetheless, I don't think it's a reason for the court to completely say that these documents are, are beyond the scope of the Public Records Act. I mean, we have similar line drawing problems under the under what goes on today, simply because people use their work emails to talk about all sorts of things, uh, and agencies have to make some distinctions about what is related to public business and what isn't. And if some government employee is who works for 
whatever, one department, a city, the city of San Jose, we're, we're talking about them, so let's keep talking about them. If they're, if they're complaining about lines at the DMV, does that relate to their official business? Probably not, whether it's sent on an office uh, email account or an individual one. Uh, so if you look at some of the more specific examples, so, okay, say that I work for, for the government and I email one of my brothers about, I don't like my boss. I think my boss is a micromanager and not very effective. Is that something that has to be disclosed? That is, yes, it, in some sense, relates to the government business. But if I'm sending it on my private email account, well, as a government employee, I also have a First Amendment right to talk about the government. And I have a privacy right under California's Constitution uh, to do so in private. So it may be that there are there are difficult uh, cases uh, and that's one of them, although I think that that pretty clearly falls on the line of something that would not have to be turned over to the employee. It's not related uh, really to the government's business, and it is more of a, a personal matter. Um, but again, just because you have some difficult possible situations uh, doesn't mean that the vast majority of them won't be incredibly clear-cut. Uh, and doesn't mean that, that you shouldn't have this sort of rule at all, or you shouldn't have a disclosure requirement at all. Uh, because, yes, maybe that's a difficult question, but if you have a government official talking with a political donor about uh, who's going to get the contract to build a new stadium, well, okay, um, that's something that the people, the voters, the public needs to know about, uh, and we shouldn't get too tied up with the possibility that there'll be a few marginal situations uh, that people have to deal with on a case-by-case basis. One more point about the textual analysis. You're trying to figure out how a, a, you know, an old, older statute, I believe the, the Records Act is, is 25, 30 years old, would pertain to situations um, in a, a digital age that the, the writers of that act probably didn't foresee. So is, it, is there some challenge to figuring out how an older act would pertain to, you know, dealing with cell phones and, and emails? Is that a problem at all here? Well, I mean, we the, the courts are always facing questions of uh, how to apply old laws to new technology. Laws laws don't keep up keep up with technology these days. Everything from how does the Fourth Amendment apply in, uh, or the First Amendment for that matter, uh, apply to electronic eavesdropping or to online speech. Well, okay, the courts the courts can deal with that, even though the founders obviously didn't have a clue that we'd be uh, have the internet or, or cell phones 200 some years later. So that's not a new problem, uh, or it's not a problem that's unique to this this situation. And fortunately, the Public Records Act is written in what we would now call a tech neutral way. It is very clear in its definition of public records that public records. And let me uh, let me look at the statute. Includes any writing containing information related to the conduct of the public's business, regardless of physical form or characteristics. Mm-hmm. So the Public Records Act is is written so that it will capture new types of communications. So I think it's a bit of a cop out to say, well, they weren't considering this specific type of communication when they drafted it. Therefore, it's not covered. The legislature specifically drafted and has amended the PRA so that it will cover these new situations. And it's really not all that different from situations that did exist back in the 60s. As I mentioned, uh, the employer, the employee who's working at home using his own typewriter, uh, his own paper, 
and uh, conducting official business. I don't think that any of us would say that, well, that's not a public record if he's writing an official memorandum just because it's sitting in his home office. Same thing applies here. So would, would your reply to the court saying that the first step here might be easy, but the second step would be tricky, um, essentially the fact that other jurisdictions have done it and there are ways to do it that, that are, you know, don't create too terrible of a burden or other problems? Absolutely. And it's the court's actually absolutely correct. The second part is is trickier because it involves implementation. Uh, but that's, again, that's not unique to, to the Public Records Act. Uh, and we have government agencies can exercise some common sense. And the superior courts and the, and the lower the courts of appeal will probably have to deal with some uh, of the trickier situations. But that's part of the reasons we have courts. The Supreme Court doesn't need to resolve all of the possibilities that could uh that that might that might occur in the future in this case what i think it does need to do is make sure that we don't have a categorical exemption for uh records relating to the official business um simply because they're sent using a, a private email account or device okay yeah we'll we'll wait for that coming down in the next couple of months and for now Michael Risher of the ACLU in Northern California. Thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And with that, our program for January 6th, 2017 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests. It was a distinct honor to chat with our Supreme Court Chief Justice, Tani Kentosaka-Ui, we greatly appreciate her taking some time out, and likewise to Michael Risher, a senior staff attorney with the ACLU. Thanks go out to members of my production staff here, including Ellen Ireland, Helen Enriquez, Nicholas Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>